Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Episode 22. In the year 22. <laughs> 22, 22, 22, 22. I can't just call it. It's got to be 2022. It feels weird to say just 22, but then it's such a mouthful to say 2022. 2022. I mean, but why? Like, it's the same as 2021. It's still saying 20 twice, but it feels like more. Yeah, I think mentally it's... It's too many twos. Twa, 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 twa. <laughs> that should be our new warm-up exercise. 2022, 2022, 2022. Red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> unique New York, unique New York. <laughs> Which, I mean, real talk, we don't do warm-up exercises. We just start acting like goofballs. Have you... <laughs> Have you ever done a warm-up when your phone's ringing? As in, you haven't yet spoken in the entirety of the day? I mean, and... that would imply that I ever answer my phone. which Or, like, the phone wakes you up. I, like, have the phone in my hand and be like, Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> I was like, hello! No, that is absolutely just you. <laughs> I don't want them to know I was asleep, so then I just sound insane instead. Which is weird, because I a lot of people do that, and I mean, I probably do it myself, but, like, why? It's it's not like you're taking a shit. Like, what is inherently shameful about having just been asleep? <laughs> it's such a weird thing to try to cover up. <laughs> it's like, what? I, I wasn't asleep. <laughs> Even, like... It's like part of the human condition of like if you're if you like doze asleep or doze off watching TV and someone else is in the room and they're like go to bed and you're like I'm I'm not sleeping. Uh, maybe it's like a evolutionarily programmed like protective mechanism like I'm not vulnerable. I was not vulnerable. I was not vulnerable. Don't attack me. <laughs> I got a phone call and it was like 1 p.m. This this is a real insight into me and I realized that I had not spoken yet. I had not, like, made a noise, and it was, like, one in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And, like, so somebody called, and I was just like, hello. <laughs> Croak. <laughs> oh, I miss those I like, days. I have children, oh, so sure. I have to speak, you know. I start talking at, like, 5 a.m. <laughs> and don't stop. Yeah, there are times, because I, I am a person who talks to myself a good amount. Really? Yes. This is new information for me. For better or worse, uh, truly, I'm a maniac. <laughs> I look back at with like such shame and embarrassment. I was like one time when I lived in Mississippi, I I needed a, my phone broke. I needed a new phone, and like I went to multiple cell phone stores, and like they were out. And I was so annoyed and I was like pulling into this one and I like got out of the car and I was like, they better have this phone. I'm just so annoyed. I can't keep doing this. And then somebody like looked at me and then I like touched my ear as though I had one of those like Bluetooths. And I was like, okay, I'm going in the store. Talk to you later. Wow. 
I see. It's always the cover up though that is worse than the actual crime. Yeah. Like the cover up is what makes me question whether you might be a psychopath. But I was once talking to myself in public, and then noticed that other people noticed, and then out loud to myself said, "Okay, you have to stop." <laughs> You know, I just, I just live in a world of my own. It's part of the <laughs> constellation of things that makes you so special. But other days, I'll go, you know, twelve hours without speaking a word. You know, <laughs> normal. That's more me, and I do miss those days. I'm just so embarrassed thinking about that cell phone thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just way more pathetic to pretend that you have a Bluetooth earpiece. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, though, like, you know, you're on it to to even think of it. That would be, like, something I would think of two days later. You're like, oh, I should have done that. <laughs> you had it right there in that moment, which, again, is what makes me question whether maybe... Have you taken the psychopath <laughs> scoring test, whatever it's called? Uh, just thinking about shame from that period of time. <laughs> One time I just fell down in high school. Like, my knees just bucked. I didn't trip. I was just standing and just fell for no explainable reason. <laughs> I think about this to this to this day. It was, like, in front of the high school, and I just fell. <laughs> uh, that's the worst. I once fell. I slipped on ice in the middle of the street, crossing the street after getting off the bus, I worked um, in Harvard Square at the time, and it was right in the middle of Harvard Square crossing the street. Oh, no. And it's like where buskers go because there are a lot of people on the street. And I just totally wiped out. <laughs> <laughs> and I just got up and I was like, oh, yeah, that, did, that wasn't the thing. That didn't happen. At least with ice, it's like people get it. <laughs> no, not in New England. That just makes you weak and... <laughs> and a terrible New Englander. That doesn't, that's not a mitigating factor here. <laughs> uh, I just, I just, there's something about falling. Mm. It's like totally as okay as a child. <laughs> and then the older you get, there's like a, an exponential growth of how not okay it is to fall. Yeah, I know. It's weird, huh? And then Until also, you get old, like, and then it's like, bad well as, as you're getting older too it also then becomes actually painful so there's that on top of it it's like you could actually be hurt but you're trying to play it cool so i was wearing a skirt which made it all the better and i fell and i actually fucked up my knee pretty badly but like you know bleeding through my tights and i'm just like you know walking as if nothing had happened so i'm like dying of embarrassment and actually somewhat hurt. <laughs> yes. I really hurt myself at the start of the pandemic. I fell down my apartment stairs. And oh, I remember I, that. Yeah. Yeah, I chipped. Uh, I'm pretty sure I didn't like go to the, get an x-ray or anything, but I'm pretty sure I chipped my elbow a little bit. Ugh. And so like I was lifting weights yesterday and I was doing like tricep curls and that my left elbow it like got a little 
hook in it and I was like, ah, oh, this is from that fall. I know this is from that fall. This is from that terrible fall that I left untreated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't want to get COVID and go to the hospital. <laughs> it was the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't know yet. Uh, okay, yes. Uh, and then I think a lot about um, this poor person that I saw fall on some stairs three times in a row. Oh, my God. It was, like, raining, and their shoes didn't have traction, and they, like, slipped. And they're like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then they slipped again. Uh, I'm like, I'm okay. And then they fell a third time, and I was like, they're never going to forget this moment. Like, the secondhand embarrassment I had from them falling for the third time. (laughs) And they were young. I mean, probably, like, somewhere, like, 18 to 20, like, a young uh, adult. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I had such embarrassment for them. But it makes you stronger. I guess. But, yeah, falling. It's no good. Fast forward, like... 15 years and I'm living in California. I'm in Oakland coming out of my therapist's office on a super busy corner. And I'm like half a block down the street before I realized that when I went to the bathroom, I tucked my dress into my underwear. No. And I'm walking down the street <laughs> with my ass hanging out. And I just pull it out and I'm like, what ifs? Like, I just literally didn't give a fuck. And I was like, I guess this is what it feels like to begin to be middle aged. I just genuinely do not care. yeah Yeah, i'm still in the shame phase (laughs) give it a couple more years i mean i i still feel shame about once i wore my shirt inside out (laughs) (laughs) and somebody was like is your shirt inside out Yeah, that thing that happened 15 years ago that as I'm trying to go to sleep, my brain's like, hey, you remember how stupid you are? (laughs) Oh, God. It happens to everyone. Well, probably not to some of the absolute freaks we cover on this podcast. (laughs) They don't have the human experience of shame. I mean, they have bigger fish to fry, though, so. Yeah, the conversations I've had with myself. It's a shame. It's a true shame in my life. One time as a kid, I was talking to myself, but with a British accent. (laughs) And uh, my brother came in. Oh, my God. And I said, you're wrong. (laughs) And I'm a grown adult. And my brother will still sometimes just look at me and say, you're wrong. Yeah. So if you talk to yourself in weird accents, let me know Mm. that I'm not alone. (laughs) And you can do that through a five-star review. Yes. Speaking of which, we have a a review to read for the pod. This one comes from Shelly WMS09. The review is entitled, My New Guilty Pleasure. Excellent research and conversation between the hosts. Also love the notes and additional info that is offered. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Five-star review. Five-star review. Five-star review. We really do try with the research, so I, I extra appreciate that. 
Totally. Actually, in my notes for the episode we're doing today, I had to take out three asides that referenced something that I researched that I found really interesting and link in the notes. <laughs> because I was like, <laughs> this doesn't propel the story forward, but it's so interesting. So absolutely. Thank you for noticing that. And also always check our episode notes because we link to a lot of like really cool stuff that you could read more about legit i god i it's so easy to do little bursts of research Mm -hmm. if i was like trying to write a book or something that required extensive research Mm -hmm. probably not as fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) but being able to follow these rabbit holes and these tangents yeah i love it very fun i love it yeah i i yeah i love it I mean, I majored in psychology in college. I've always had a really deep interest in it. So when I say I'm not a psychologist, inside my head, I'm actually like, but I kind of (laughs) am. Because I studied it, and then I basically spent my 30s trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with me by reading a lot of psychological books. And I don't mean like women are from Venus, men are from Mars. I mean like actual texts in psychology. Not that there's anything wrong with self-help. And I did read a lot of self-help too. But so I do consider myself to be an unlicensed, technically unqualified pseudo (laughs) psychologist. Apologies to all of the psychology teachers out there, but I'm living my life with a working hypothesis that they are all deeply fucked up people. Oh, that's known. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, technically, but I think that I spent enough time in that realm to say that most people who I know who are psychologists will will be the first to admit that is true. Yeah, I like... I took two psychology classes in college, and both professors were unhinged. (laughs) They were deranged people, and they would tell us stories, and it was like, that's not cool. Mm. Like one, she was talking about her daughter, like, slammed the door, and so she removed her bedroom door entirely, and then her daughter, like, put up pillows and blankets sort of as a barrier and she removed those and I was like you're telling this story as though it's a good thing to do and you just sound kind of like abusive (laughs) and then the other psychology teacher like his son was throwing a tantrum at the grocery store and so he picked him up and put him on the conveyor belt and was like well you want attention so bad dance for everybody And I'm like, this is child abuse. I don't understand. (laughs) So yeah, both of my psychology teachers certified freaks. Yikes. I mean, those sound like things that you would fantasize about doing with your kids, but not things you would actually do. When I can even understand removing the door, like that part of the story is like, okay, I can even see that as a weird teachable moment. But the way she kept going Mm. and like, it was so long, and I was like, so she slammed the door once, and you, like, removed her door for, like, a month? Because that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And you probably reported her to the authorities, right? <laughs> Sorry to our psychology teacher listeners. <laughs> and 
yeah, I should have. She needs to be on a watch list. Ugh. I do think it's kind of a truism, though, that a lot of people, hashtag not all psychologists, but a lot of people are drawn to that field as a way of trying to figure themselves out Mm -hmm. or make sense of things that happen to them. Yeah. And then we were drawn to our field. (laughs) No particular reason for me. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Just stumbled into it. So I've been racking my brain for a transition and I can't think of one. But speaking of people who have no psychological insight, I don't know. This is all you. Speaking of deranged people. Yes. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Speaking of deranged people, we have... I'll just edit this to sound like it was a seamless transition. (laughs) It was seamless. (laughs) We have a phrase that I've started using pretty regularly now, and I think I'm just going to stick with it, which is scumbag du jour, because pretty much everyone we talk about is a scumbag. Yeah. So our guy today is someone who you may or may not know of. I, I feel like this one is not obscure, I mean, but is known kind of only in certain realms. His name is Michael Alig, and he was born as a public persona, and we'll get to what exactly he was known for in a bit. But he was born as a public persona when he arrived in New York City as a 17-year-old hayseed from Indiana in 1982 or 1983. He was escaping a suffocating, homophobic, small-town life to attend Fordham University. But by the second half of 1983, he had discovered the Manhattan club scene of the 80s, which is pretty infamous. And he gave up college to be a busboy at Danceteria, a three-level new wave club catering to the after-hours crowd in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. And just as I was saying how many asides I took out of this, I'm going to insert an aside here as a possible point of interest. Danceteria was the first club to play videos, which were still a very new thing at the time, and the first club to have two DJs playing continuously on different floors. And I hope I'm not stepping on Andrew's toes here, but it was also a favorite of budding superstar musicians of the time, most importantly, my old fave, Duran Duran, but also Madonna. In 1982, she reportedly persuaded a DJ to play her demo for the crowd at Danceteria. So back to our story, but still deep in 1980s Manhattan culture. Within a few months of devoting himself full-time to the club scene, Alig had demonstrated a knack for attracting followers. And I'm using followers in the original sense of the word here. People who literally followed someone around IRL. Alig cultivated a talent and a reputation for being the it guy. He organized fanciful and dramatic parties and attracted hundreds and later thousands of people to events with his high arch antics. In today's terms, you could say he was one of the original influencers. Way before Insta or TikTok, Michael Alig understood that an almost stage-like persona could be adopted writ large and turned into a personal brand. And Alig's brand stood in sharp contrast to the staunch social conservatism of the Reagan era. 
With his flamboyant persona and kaleidoscopic personal style, he was the antithesis of the buttoned-up preppy style that was having a hardcore moment in the 80s. But Alig's professional drive and me-first narcissism, in the non-clinical sense of the word, was actually very 80s. Alig could have easily been written in as the black sheep little brother of Gordon Gecko from Oliver Stone's 1987 meditation on Reaganomic greed, Wall Street. Alig liked to shock conservatives, but he was not so dissimilar in a lot of ways. He followed the work hard, play hard mantra so popular in the 80s. Power, money, status, exemption from the rules that applied to everyone else. Though shrouded by an interest in entertainment and arts, I think Alig was as familiar with these drives as the most hardened corporate raider. It's well known in the 80s club scene it involved a lot of so-called club drugs. Ketamine, aka Special K, Ecstasy, aka MDMA, Coke, of course, LSD, Rohypnol, aka the date rape drug, but in the beginning, Alig was working too hard at becoming an internationally known club promoter to engage in the drug scene. He worked around the clock, devising ever more creative venues for his fellow Reagan-era misfits to embrace and really to flaunt their anti-establishment ethos. But as time wore on, Alig achieved the acclaim and power that he seemed to crave, and the work hard, play hard scales tipped increasingly from work hard, play hard to just play hard. And as society began to feel the effects of Reagan's monstrous policies, the limitless optimism of the 80s slowly gave way to the low-key nihilism of the early 90s. The Reagan-era misfits seemed to gather more and more as a way of discharging angst than celebrating uniqueness or embracing solidarity. According to a 2006 New Yorker article by Jonathan Van Meter, the club scene took on an even darker tone by the mid-90s. This is a quote from his great piece titled Party Boy in a Cage, with a few descriptive asides by me. The full article is linked in our show notes and I highly recommend it. Van Meter says, quote, At Alig's Disco 2000, which took place in 1991, the Wednesday night bacchanal at the limelight, the warm, fuzzy bath of a room full of people on ecstasy, had turned into a torture chamber. People dressed like monsters stumbling around in their K-holes, which is a term for the dissociative state that accompanies acute ketamine intoxication. They stumbled around in a deconsecrated gothic church while the menacing hardcore techno music drove them literally out of their minds, end quote. Yeah. By this time, too, Alig was beyond the standard club scene decadence that it's known for. He had succumbed to full-on addiction. He was arrested several times on drugs charges in the early 90s and was in and out of rehab. His boss, Peter Gatian, who had given him his biggest break in 1988 and supported him for years, sent him to rehab one last time in 1995. According to Alig, he completed his stint, but after his release, Gatian fired him. Incidentally, Gatian himself was arrested and charged with drug trafficking in 1996. 
So it's not like this was an imperative to be drug-free, some moral kind of proposition. Yeah. But Alig had gotten messy, and it was fucking up business for his boss. At this point, Alig shifts from being a bona fide leader within the club scene to being essentially the king of the club kids. He continued to enjoy an elevated status, but his life was circling the drain, and that was becoming obvious even to people who were not in his inner circle. On the night of March 17, 1996, Alig and his roommate Robert Riggs, who was also known as Freeze in the club community, were visited by Andre Melendez, who was known as Angel in the community. Angel had come to their apartment, ostensibly to collect on a drug debt. Now, Angel was a 24-year-old club kid who had immigrated to the United States with his family from Colombia in 1979 when he was eight. Not a whole lot is known about his early life, but in the early 90s, he met Peter Gatian, who was Alig's boss, and was hired by him to work at his clubs. I, I don't know his official title, but from all the reports, he was ostensibly the official drug dealer for Gatian's clubs. Angel, like I said, had apparently gone to Alig's apartment to collect on a long-standing drug debt. We only have Alig and Riggs' word on this, but the meeting became violent, and Angel was on top of Alig at some point. Alig cried out for help, and Riggs, again, according to them, got a hammer and hit Angel in the head three times to subdue him, supposedly. A New York Times report after his arrest described it this way, quote, Prosecutors said Mr. Alig, who is 30 years old, killed Mr. Melendez during an argument about money inside Mr. Alig's apartment on West 43rd Street in early March. According to law enforcement officials who spoke on condition of anonymity, Mr. Alig beat Mr. Melendez on the head with a hammer, strangled or suffocated him, injected him with a toxic substance, then cut off his hands and legs and tossed the body into the Hudson River, end quote. The thing is, though, after Angel went missing, nothing official was done about it for months. All the while, Alig was continuing with his life of decadence and drug abuse and was telling anyone and everyone in the club scene that he killed Angel. And rumors circulated about it for nine months. Initially, I think people thought, oh, it's just Alig, like, talking shit. You know, they, he, he was a very larger-than-life persona. He was very attention-seeking. And so mm -hmm. I think initially some people just kind of dismissed it. But the truth was, no one had seen Angel. He was missing, and the rumors continued, and Alig continued talking about this thing that he had done. So the rumors circulated for nine months, until Columbia-educated journalist and author Michael Musto eventually helped crack the case by publishing a blind item in the Village Voice. That item was then picked up by Page Six, the infamous gossip column of the New York Post. Finally, in November 1996, police couldn't dismiss the account as rumor any longer. Um, the publication of these blind items was putting too much pressure. It was becoming well-known outside of this kind of small club scene community. Mm -hmm. The city medical examiner's office announced at that time that remains that had washed up on a Staten Island beach in April, just a month after his murder, 
they had been identified as belonging to Andre Angel Melendez. So, I mean, they had had his body in the coroner's office all this time, and who knows what they were even doing with it. You know, I think there's a lot of um, homophobia, a lot of stereotypes, a lot of bias, Mm -hmm. and just dismissing, you know, the case, the rumors. You know, like we've seen in other cases, I think police just didn't care. He was an immigrant, gay, drug dealer, um, and didn't really Mm -hmm. merit a deep investigation. Ailig and Riggs were arrested in December 1996, but hoping to help make a case against Ailig's former boss, Peter Gatian, prosecutors held off on charging Ailig with first-degree murder. So again, remember I said in 1996, Peter Gatian was facing charges of drug trafficking, and they were hoping to kind of get Ailig to testify against him and catch this bigger fish in this drug trafficking drug community. But All the while, there were still rumors circulating that Alig and Riggs' version of events wasn't true, that the altercation hadn't been over a drug debt at all, but instead had been premeditated as retaliation um, for Angel having something to do with Gatian's arrest and to silence Angel in relation to the ongoing drug trafficking investigation. Ultimately, Gatian was not convicted of those charges. He was convicted of some lesser charges and deported to his home of Canada. And ultimately, both Alig and Riggs were charged with second-degree murder. But ultimately, they took a plea deal and were convicted of manslaughter. Alig served 17 years of a 10- to 20-year sentence and was released. I don't have the year here. But on December 24, 2020, Alig died of an accidental overdose at the age of 54. The infamous promoter's cause of death was found to be acute intoxication by fentanyl, acetafentanyl, heroin, and methamphetamine. The office of the chief medical examiner in New York City, the same who eventually identified Angel's remains, confirmed. The same guy? Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. (laughs) So it's just, you know, it's such a sad story. It's one of those cases, I mean, there's so many cases like this, and, and this is part of, you know, the systemic issues that lead us to have a lot of information about killers and not a lot of information about victims. It can lead to, you know, victim blaming and erasure and all kinds of things. In this case, there's just not a lot of information about Angel and lots and lots about Alig because I think partly... He was just such a charismatic, like, larger-than-life guy. Mm -hmm. So a bummer of the day. Yeah. I looked this up while you, after you mentioned Angel's body and them not doing anything. Mm -hmm. In 2020, the percentage of solved murders in the U.S. fell to 54%. Uh, I was reading about this the other day. The case has been going down for two decades. Yeah, the case, yeah, the like, rate, I mean. In the 70s, it was like 70% yeah. of murders were solved, yeah. and now it's 54. Yeah. You know, it's a complicated conversation about police, but I think we don't talk enough about how many cases they don't solve. Right, right. You have the people who, like, absolutely adore police the people who absolutely hate them Mm -mm. but it's like statistically it's an extremely safe job Mm -hmm. yeah it's not very dangerous yeah and they don't solve half of the murder yeah 
Well, I mean, it's just so freaky because I was just reading an article, which I would have to go back and look for to, to know where it was, but it was about this very topic. And one of the reasons that someone was positing was basically it's a victim now of its own bad PR. And so it's not an esteemed profession anymore and it's not attracting high quality applicants and they are essentially having to accept anyone who comes into the academy. And then what happens is within a couple of years, those same recruits who would never have made the cut 20 years ago are being elevated to detective and they just don't have what it takes to do this kind of policing for sure, which is solve cases. Yeah. It's wild. And I think, uh. you know, again, in this case, it wasn't just incompetence. It wasn't just, but it was a combination of, you know, they had a bigger fish who they wanted to fry. And so I think they were preoccupied with the drug trafficking part of this. But uh -huh. again, I mean, I think, I don't think it's a wild assertion to say that the attitude of a lot of police officers when someone who is a known drug dealer dies or goes missing is just kind of like somebody took out the trash for us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think that a lot of attention was paid. Again, on top of it, Alig happened to be a member of LGBTQIA community, as was Angel. And I think that that was a part of it is, you know, there were layers of... of um, prejudice here yeah that makes sense but 54 percent horrifying yeah yeah but it was a specific because in 2019 it was like 61 percent so like there was a hard drop yeah just i mean maybe the pandemic has something to do with it somehow but that is a very scary number you would expect it to be much higher yeah and I, you know i think it's one of those things that is like social scientists are going to dig into that and see some trends in 10 years to see what what is the pandemic and what kind of impact that had but i think it's pretty easy to see the way that our kind of insular lives um contributes to these different silos you know everybody lives mm -hmm. lives in silos now and so what used to qualify as random now it's not really random but trying to find the non-randomness in it is harder because of the way that we live yeah yeah it's wild damn mm -hmm. well do you want to hear about the culture side absolutely this is i i think just a really interesting one because it existed and happened within a subculture that was pop culture i mean that's kind of where mm -hmm. it existed from the very beginning. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. My research starts with a book. Mm. So the events of Elixir as a club promoter up to his arrest are covered in James St. James's memoir, Disco Bloodbath, mm -hmm. a fabulous but true tale of murder in clubland. And that came out in 1999. Mm -hmm. So the book, that book has gone out of print uh, and it goes for several hundred dollars an auction. So if you have one. Wow. <laughs> so it was 
printed three times, twice in paperback with different colored jackets, once in hardcover. But then it was reprinted starting in 2003 under the title Party Monster, Mm -hmm. the fabulous but true tale of murder in Clubland. So why the name change? It was to capitalize on the 2003 motion picture of the same name. Mm. But before we get to that, first there was a 1998 documentary Party Monster, the Shockumentary, and that was directed by Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado, the same duo who would go on to produce the immensely popular RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm. Uh, The documentary is based in part on St. James' memoir and combines interview footage of Alig from prison, St. James, scene watchers like Michael Musto, commentary by Alig's mom, a number of former club kids with archival footage from various parties, and also dramatic reenactments. Mm -hmm. So it played at a variety of film festivals, including the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. So then that brings us to Party Monster, the movie. Mm -hmm. So it's an American biographical drama written and directed, again, by Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. So the same duo from Mm -hmm. the documentary, the same duo who created RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm -hmm. Um, So the movie stars Macaulay Culkin as A-Lig. It premiered at Sundance, later played at cons. Overall, (laughs) the film wasn't very successful. Mm especially with critics. It holds a 28% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Really? Yes. But it was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the 2003 Sundance Film Festival. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars, calling Culkin's performance fearless. Mm -hmm. And his performance may have been helped by the fact that Macaulay had a four-hour meeting with Michael Mm -hmm. in prison listening to him, studying his movements, his mindsets. In a 2003 interview with ABC, Macaulay said, quote, He seemed remorseful, but at the same time was putting up this facade. He was putting on the Michael Alig act for me, mm-hmm. the wild and crazy guy, end quote. Mm-hmm. So getting back to the film, much more importantly than its critical success, or lack thereof, <laughs> is that it developed a cult following Mm -hmm. and it's easy to see why so daisy jones a writer for vice described it i'm just taking her quote because i feel like it really summed it up quote despite not grossing even a quarter of what was spent on it and with a current 29 percent rotten tomatoes the movie has gradually gained a cult following it's easy to see why it's camp and distasteful brilliant and badly acted and contains the kind of cameos you rarely see on the same screen from Chloe Sevigny and Natasha Lyonne to Marilyn Manson. It has a soundtrack of back-to-back club tracks that are just as prominent as each meticulously painted face and outfit, making you feel as though you're actually hopping from party to party, teetering on the edge of something sinister that you know is just around the corner, mm. end quote. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I liked it. I watched it. It's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good movie. I was surprised by the Rotten Tomatoes yeah, score. Yeah, very surprised. But not that this is everything, but just think about homophobia in 2003. Yeah, yeah. Like, not to say it's a brilliant movie. Like, it's good bad. Yeah. (laughs) But it's not 29% bad. Yeah. Well, and I think that was the era of, like, will and grace, I'm okay with gay people. So this, like, Mm -hmm. in-your-face, flamboyant, proud, like, that was not a brand of LGBTQIA that 
mainstream America, I think, was open to at that point, if if yeah. it even exists now. And then there was, I mean, surprising, not surprising, but there was a surprise success from the movie, which was its soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So the soundtrack peaked at number 21 on the U.S. Billboard Dance Electronic Albums chart. Um, I've added some of the songs to our Most Foul Music playlist on Spotify. Mm -hmm. Uh, That same Vice writer called the soundtrack, quote, perfectly executed narrative of hedonism and darkness, of pleasure and pain, of club culture liquidized and bottled. It's a part of that, end quote. Mm. It's really, and I listened to it uh, yesterday, sort of like just getting into the vibe. Yeah. It is a really interesting soundtrack. <laughs> so definitely check out our playlist. Yeah. Um, there's some good stuff on there. So we have this movie, ostensibly a cult classic at this point. Yeah. And then it was turned into a musical for the stage in 2013. Ugh. And that was Clubland, The Monster Pop Party, written by Andrew Barrett Cox and produced by Jacob S. Porter. It's a 2013 interactive musical based on both the book and the film. And author St. James said of the production, quote, It's always been my dream to see my book made into either a big Broadway musical or a Saturday morning cartoon. Jacob and Andrew are going to make one of those dreams come true, end quote. Hmm. Sounds, he sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> I think this would be a weird Saturday morning cartoon, but I suppose there is a version of Club Kids that I was thinking of like 90s cartoons. I was like, there probably could have been something. Uh, hasn't happened yet. We'll see if it ever does. Weird. So that encompasses sort of that ripple effect from St. James's book, but there's still more. Mm-hmm. Um, a prison interview with A-Lig is featured in the 2011 documentary Limelight, which charts the rise and fall of New York City club king Peter Gatian. Uh, that was directed by Billy Corbin and co-produced by Jen Gatian, Peter's daughter. Mm. So this documentary premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2018, and Deadline has since announced that Amazon Studios set Alfonso Gomez Rayon to direct a feature film adaptation of Limelight. So that should be coming at some point, pandemic willing. <laughs> but yeah, that documentary is now being turned into a movie. But back to documentaries. Mm -hmm. There's a 2005 documentary called Glory Days, The Life and Times of Michael Eilig. And that reviews the creation, rise, and dissipation of the club kids phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So over to TV, the case has been featured on a variety of shows. American Justice, Dancing, Drugs, and Murder on A&E. Notorious on the Biography Channel, Deadly Devotion, Becoming Angel on Investigation Discovery, The 90s, The Deadliest Decade, uh, and most recently 2018's E! True Hollywood Story, Death of Disco. Mm. It's also impacted over in music. So Michael and Angel's friend, Screaming Rachel, who Billboard magazine dubbed Queen of House Music, wrote the song... Give Me My Freedom slash Murder in Clubland after Alig and another friend took a road trip to visit her in Colorado five weeks after Angel's then disappearance. Mm-hmm. So some of the lyrics include the line, Michael, where's Angel? Did someone just cry wolf or is he dead? Mm. So she, I mean, they were friends. They were both friends. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, I truly can't imagine 
you're hanging out with your friend who murdered your other friend and you don't know it yet, but he keeps talking about yeah. it and yeah, nightmare scenario. Mm-hmm. Also in music, Ashley Schatz released a song about Michael as well as Malcolm Function, Justin Symbol, Star Daddy, and Jason Alesi. Very club music. Mm-hmm. Um, I've added some of these to our most foul Spotify playlist, the ones that are on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Michael himself released a song in 2014. Yeah. It was called What's In, and it featured DJ Kiyoki and was written and produced by Greg Tanous. So he also released an EP that same year, also entitled What's In. Uh, it failed to make an impact. The video has less than 170,000 views on YouTube, and the song has less than 90,000 streams on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Uh, even still, you can listen to it. It's on our playlist. It's weird. It's fine. I've listened it's to fine. it. Yeah. yeah, and I looked I looked after we, after we switched. 2014 is when he was released from jail. Oh, so right away. Mm-hmm. He was also doing parties immediately after jail to the point where people were making petitions about canceling them and why are we celebrating a murderer. Yeah. But, like, the parties, like, leaned into it, like, the Michael's out of jail party. Uh. And then he was doing a, a tour, and he was supposed to do one in Texas, but he was arrested for drug possession, yeah. and that got canceled. And, yeah. I mean tragic addiction story but mm-hmm. also don't celebrate murderers yeah for sure um so then sort of lastly michael was working on a sequel to party monster over the last few years um i watched a youtube video on his channel from 2019 where he discussed the project it was apparently shot documentary style and it was supposed to show what his life was like after prison Mm -hmm. but with his death on christmas eve of 2020 it looks like that probably won't come to fruition Mm -hmm. um and with that we've reached the relatively small but still significant pop culture impact of this case yeah yeah, it's such an interesting one. And I think just in a lot of ways, there's a lot of different layers to it that that are interesting in terms of his psychology, the time, the, you know, there's just a lot to it, I think. And that is reflected in kind of its larger impact than you might expect for something that at the time was happening in this smaller kind of subculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. But also so sad and so bad. And I wonder if like all of these things that have come after and the friends who have talked about it and published and like what happened to Angel's family, you know, this immigrant family who comes to a country hoping for a better life and, you know, their son is taken from them and what became of them. I, you know, it's, it's still a very sad story and you know, he was part of this ecosystem and you could say maybe part of the darker side of this ecosystem, but he's still a human, you know, and yeah. Yeah. I watched some of Michael's YouTube videos and it, it's like, the only thing I kept thinking was like desperation for relevancy. Yeah. Yeah. I saw some of those as well and they were terrible. I mean, yeah. Not to be that guy, but, like, in 2019, 
iPhones record really good videos. I, the quality was terrible. The audio was terrible. They, there was like no structure flow scripting. It was just like well, awkward and bad. I mean, there were some of them you could tell he was very clearly high as could be too. You know, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was a mess. Yeah, and it walked an interesting line about second chances. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just don't see, I mean, not even so much the murder, but the body disposal to me was like, no, this is more than a crime of passion. Well, yeah, because in that moment, if it went down the way they said it went down, once they hit him with the hammer, they could have called police. I mean, I suppose as I'm saying this, I'm realizing how absurd it is because they were all strung out. So they're not going to call police. But I, I mean, I, I don't know. And going into the details of it, I mean, they they put him in the bathroom and they went into the bathroom and they put a mattress up against the door for whatever reason, I don't know, like inside the mind of someone who's strung out. They blocked the door with a mattress and then they stayed in there with him for like seven days before they finally came up with the solution that they came up with. I mean, it's pretty incomprehensible. Yeah. Yeah, it's, ugh. But, you know, I do think that like, you know, with some other cases that we talk about at times, there are parts of this that make you see the humanity beneath all of this like larger than life persona And I read in one of the articles that I mentioned, the interviewer was talking to him about being in jail and, you know, asked something like, is it terrible? And he said, it's lonely. He said, it's kind of like being a gay kid in Indiana, only a hundred times worse. And like in those moments, you get a glimpse of that humanity and what baggage he must have been bringing with him to the city when he came Um, Mm -hmm. and what might have been driving his desire to become this person this person who people looked up to who people followed but i mean again like we all have these kind of stories or lots and lots of people do and they don't kill and dismember people and throw them in the river Mm -hmm. so don't do bad drugs y'all yeah seriously (laughs) like i they're good drugs (laughs) just do those (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's huge in the gay community. Like, ketamine, it's just like, holy shit. Like, I think people are desensitized to that it's scary. Yeah, that seems like a really, like, again, I'm, I've am i always been kind of a straight edger, but that seems like a particularly difficult one on a lot of levels. Like, safety-wise for yourself, but then also what it does to you when you're when you're high. Yeah, I've never done it. I've been offered several times. Mm. Someone even was like, you want to go into a K-hole. And it's like, no, no, thank you. Well, and because I'm such a dork, I had to, I, I, I put the aside in that quote for people listening like me who were like, what's a K-hole? I mean, I can infer kind of what it is, but I was like, I want to know exactly what a K-hole is. And then I'm reading about it and it's like, you dissociate completely. And so then it's like, yeah, you could do crazy stuff when you're completely dissociated, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. 
And if you are going to do drugs, Amazon sells drug testers. So you can make sure that what you're taking is what you're told it is. Right. Well, and that is one thing around his ultimate death. I mean, I think it was no secret that he was using drugs again, even though he claimed when he came out of jail that he was sober. But when he did die, ultimately, I think a lot of his friends and a lot of people in the circle were kind of in disbelief that as a very experienced heroin user that he could overdose on heroin, meaning that his his um, tolerance would be so high and his knowledge of what kind of doses he could take would be such that they couldn't believe it. But then when the results came back, it it was fentanyl that had been added. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was ultimately what he what he overdosed on. I read that too, and it struck me as such a such a dumb human thing we do. Mm-hmm to like find meaning because I, I, I like I said I read that exact thing about well there's no way he could have overdosed he's such a good drug user yeah. and it's like what a stupid I mean I get it but at the same time like one you don't know what anything's laced with right but two you reach a level of high you're not in your right brain anymore like yeah. I don't I'm sure it was just like desperately looking for answers yeah but yeah that that line struck me too of like well yeah but people die all the time that are experienced drug users I I think it's just like a coping mechanism yeah yeah well I mean you know it's the lies that we tell ourselves around things that we know are not good for us yet we choose to keep doing and I think everybody has those things nobody is without any kind of vice it's just that some people's things are more lethal than others this was years ago. I haven't done it in years. But I would like pride myself on how good I was at texting and driving. Mm. Like, you know, like more than a decade ago. Yeah. In my defense, I was very good at it. <laughs> it was We are not promoting texting and driving on this podcast. No. It was pre-iPhone. So it was a keypad and kind of like a keyboard it had the raised numbers so you like your thumb could feel where you were mm. so i did not have to look at my phone i could text by touch mm. but it, it sounds crazy like even thinking and reminiscing back on it like we did not know how dangerous it was yet right right yeah so i would text and drive all the time and like i said it's been years and years and years since i've done it at all because i i now understand like it's just as dangerous as drunk driving right but yeah, yeah like, i mean that was the... a lie i told myself about how good i was at it how safe i was right how, like well and i mean for me i rationalized it by thinking it's the same as looking over to change the channel on the radio you know which probably also is not an awesome thing to do but it's a very like momentary thing you do it once and it's over you know but yeah Mm -hmm. i mean there are lots of things that we lie to ourselves about every single day i mean if we didn't have that capacity i'm not sure that anyone would ever leave the house or that humans would be what we are now but it can it can also have its downsides i think my most common lies are well one i'm gonna go to bed early tonight (laughs) and two yeah, I'm not going to eat this whole bag of chips. <laughs> See, my biggest one is like, if you eat 
the whole bag of chips in 20 little sessions instead of all at once. Like it somehow has a different nutritional profile. (laughs) (laughs) I bought a flaming hot dill pickle chips yesterday. (laughs) Gross. They're the best chip ever created. (laughs) It's one of humanity's greatest (laughs) inventions. Oh my God. That is disgusting. Oh, it's so delicious. And I'm going to finish the bag today for sure. (laughs) Now I know what Andrew's doing after we finish recording this episode. Yeah, anytime you see me with uh, bright red fingertips, you'll know. (laughs) Actually, it's to the point now where I eat my flaming hot Cheetos with chopsticks so I don't stain my skin. (laughs) Oh, totally. That's pro level. I mean, I don't know with flaming hot and pickle flavor, but I'm a Cheetos. I'm just a purist. I'm a Cheetos gal myself. And yeah, any like basic Cheeto lover knows you don't eat them with your fingers. Crunchy or puff? (sighs) Crunchy. Yeah, of course. That's the only answer. (laughs) (laughs) Puffs are like, whatever. (laughs) somebody's so mad at us right now (laughs) if you're a puff lover write in the form of a five-star review and explain yourself yeah i'd love to know (laughs) i want to know what makes you tick uh well that's what we have yes (laughs) we appreciate the hell out of you absolutely goodbye Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Most Vowel. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini-episode, visit our website at mostvowelpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 